0: This is Dr. Adam Rindy, and today's episode is called Coronavirus Behind the Front Lines. This episode is intended to talk about what it's like for us healthcare providers who are outside the hospital setting and how we've been dealing with the coronavirus. I'm not going to speak about treatments for coronavirus or prevention, just wanting to share some insights and reflections on the process thus far. We may be joined in progress by some other providers that have been invited. However, I'm just going to go ahead and start talking a little bit. It dawned on me in practice that this may become an ordeal. Way back in January, when we started hearing about the outbreak in China, um, January of 2020, started hearing about just the magnitude of people who were being diagnosed with COVID-19, and that really started to kind of plant the seeds of how this may have more of an impact. But reading about it in the news, you sort of continue to feel detached. And I'll talk further about when things started to hit home. But I first want to take a step back and just say that um, my whole mode of approach during this uh, coronavirus has been to take off the hat of the clinician that's in private practice and put on the hat of more of a public health mindset. And so i have really trying to think about what's right for the community and what's right for our healthcare system. And of course, at the same time, what's right for the practice, the patients that I care for. It's been a shift, um, when seeing that the decisions and the filters that we run our practice through have, have changed um, dramatically. So I just wanna say I wholeheartedly am concerned about our community and concerned about the world's health and everything that I've run through my kind of perspective on is based on working together with the whole healthcare system to help us get back on track as a world, as a community, as a local community, as a global community. So I'm going to go into talking about some of the things that really deeply changed me in practice. And the moment that I was really changed by this was when towards the end of February, we started hearing about, this is February 2020, we started hearing about the outbreak that had taken place in one of the local facilities that have, um, that cares for elders and um, people who have serious health conditions who are more towards the latter part of their life. This is in Kirkland, Washington, which is or six miles away from my office and the people who were living there we started to hear that there was some deaths and that this was starting to increase and there was three deaths four deaths six deaths and so all of a sudden they isolated that in our community that this coronavirus had landed and at the time it was thought to be not as alarming for, from a global perspective. For, of course, very upsetting that all these people were dying so rapidly. And it, eventually, I think it got up to 12 or more patients in that early phase that had died in that um, Life Center facility in Kirkland. And at that point, it was thought that perhaps these this virus was contained to this population and really um, most of us just sort of went about our business, of course, with an eye on the situation there. Now, for me, that sense of feeling of containment of virus was very short lived because we had uh interactions with people that I work with um, as patients who were intimately involved with that condition. Um, Some as first responders, medics, and firemen, firewomen, fire professionals that were on the scene that had had some exposure. And keep in mind, this was early where people were completely caught off guard about what might be going on and the kind of protection that was needed. And then also um, some of my patients who are dealing with immune conditions that knew of people who had been in the center and had exposed them, potentially exposed them to this virus. So right away within the first Few days of this outbreak, um, early March. People I was working with had already been impacted and potentially um, had transmission of this this virus. So, you know, as a provider, um, I felt like I had to get my act in gear, and really, just like anybody knows we were sort of unprepared for what might be coming at that point. Um, the transmission concerns were very high um, and people started to panic. And I remember in March, early March, there started to be some news about that this epidemic was going to hit our area. And that's the first time I started seeing the supermarket starting to be cleared out of food and toilet paper. And just sort of a mass hysteria kicked in um, because in our country we hadn't seen it yet and we had no one to learn from and there really wasn't much understanding of entirely what was going on in China other than thousands and thousands of people were being diagnosed and, and thousands of people were dying. We didn't really understand how that translated to what we needed to do here. So, I actually early on went into more of a survival mode. Um, I started researching all the different ways and weapons we might have against viruses and started thinking about diet and hygiene and started putting together talks on the immune system and basically going back to the basics of my training of like antiviral nutrition and uh, hygiene practices to help prevent virus and spend a lot of time diving in and just making sure I knew what we needed to have in place to fight the, this virus and um, then wanting to communicate with the people I'm caring for, you know, to be prepared. And I remember having many conversations early in that part of the process where uh, I was maybe hyper alert, hyper vigilant. And I'll speak to that earlier, later. Um, but, and other people were just kind of like, do you really think this is going to be a big deal? And some people were taking it seriously. A lot of people were just kind of neutral. And many people were just not really thinking this is going to be a big deal. And I felt like I was um, talking to myself. Uh, But I was enrolled at the time, and I still am in a postdoctoral program through Cogent Immunology. And so I was really involved with studying the immune system basically for the last 12 months and I couldn't have thought of a better way to prepare me for understanding what we need to do. So I, I started to really dive into the physiology of natural killer cells and T cells and how to fight viruses. So at the time I I just sort of really kicked into gear into, you know, what I could do. Um, Having a background in having dealt with like a life-threatening condition within my family. Um, I had a son who was a cancer patient, Jordan, and he, we were dealing with through his cancer battles before he passed away, we were dealing with these kinds of threats all the time because of immunosuppression. If someone coughed near him, we would, you know, potentially have a life-threatening line infection um, you know, within hours. So we, I, I was kind of coming from a mindset of what we had to do to keep him well and keep him out of harm's way. And to, to be honest, like I, I really went into a very unhealthy, kind of overdriven place in the beginning of this coronavirus outbreak. And so I I was staying up and trying to figure out how to basically protect everybody I know and everybody I'm caring for from getting infected and and you know reached a point where I exhausted what I knew and I realized I still didn't know if I could help people and protect them. But that is kind of the process that anybody goes through when they're dealing with a problem that's way, way complex. You know, it's like you get into a situation where you reach your max and you you, you have to go with what you know. So further on in these early days, I touched base with a friend of mine who's a very dear friend. And um, she was telling me, you know, with her autoimmune condition how and her her immune suppression that she has based on medications that, that she was starting to develop symptoms and she needed to go into the hospital and I had lost touch with her during that process and she was deeply on my mind and you know before I know it within 3 to 7 days of this all starting you know I was hearing about and interacting with people who potentially we're going down the road of, of serious symptoms related to COVID-19. At that point, I think the community and people started to, uh, slowly take this more and more serious and, um, we've kind of now gone through these different phases where we're taking it more and more serious. We started the physical distancing, businesses started shutting down in our area. Microsoft will started telling all their employees to stay home. Amazon, Google. And we started to see that this was just a, a huge ordeal. And still, you know, it just felt like some there's all degrees of what people were willing to do. Um, in this early days of, of uh, taking this seriously and um, getting on board with physical distancing. And um, I'll say that, you know, one of the most challenging things for this is that um, there are, there's sort of this sense of, what's happening with all the health conditions that people were dealing with prior to the coronavirus threat. And so this has taken center stage with most of my patients. And what's been really interesting and also very complex about this is that um, this is kind of in the lower brain centers and some of the, because the, it's, it's an immediate threat and a more pressing threat and a more life threatening life threatening threat than we've experienced in as a community. And some of the other problems that we are dealing with sort of chronic problems, such as like blood pressure issues or digestive issues or other autoimmune conditions, sleep disorders have kind of been pushed in the background um, a little bit. And in fact, you know, it's, it's, really complicated matters because people are overwhelmed with knowing what they need to do and what Mm -hmm. to focus on. And so I'd say the second and third week of this has been about getting situated with health plans that not only are focused on Coronavirus prevention and helping the community prevent the spread, but also making sure that people's health issues that they have pre-existing are not being mismanaged. And so, it's really complicated measures um, that would I would say that that's been the biggest issue. And what I've seen in the the second and third week is more panic about making sure that people have months and months of supplies of medications and also making sure that people are you know having immune immune support and that their immunity is is fully equipped to deal with threats mm-hmm. and what has ratcheted up is the extreme anxiety around this unknown and that is you know sort of the biggest thing right now um, from a standpoint of as a provider outside of the health facilities so I'm you know I'm not in a hospital I'm not in the ICU I'm actually sitting in a place of Trying to prevent people from having to use those services. Number one, because they'll they might be unknowingly exposing themselves to someone with the virus if they go into the facility prematurely, but also them going into the facility prematurely um, will put pressure on the system that's already about to break, meaning. The hospital beds, the short staff, the la- lack of personal protection equipment, and so when I'm getting calls from people or um, people wanting to discuss the potential of symptoms, we you know we're sitting here without tests widely available to determine if someone has coronavirus, and we're sitting here kind of trying to, with the data we have from the World Health Organization, the CDC, South Korea, and China, to figure out if this is someone who needs to go into a into a healthcare facility or if we can prevent them from going into a healthcare facility. So, you know, for example, you know, if someone has like a cough or a sore throat or, you know, malaise or kind of fatigue and they're really anxious about the coronavirus, well, for that particular person, you know, they want to figure out really fast if this is something they have so that they can make adjustments in their life. But for the healthcare system um, right now, that person may or may not be a good resource a, a good use of resources if we bring them into the hospital. And so it's very tricky right now um, to sit back and make decisions um, from, from what little tools we have. So what I will say is, you know, the, the expansion of telemedicine has allowed us to at least interface and see people and ask questions and watch their uh, body language and and see how sick they appear and you can get a sense of how well they're breathing and we can talk about temperature and we can get a general appearance of how someone is is uh is feeling and so it's been really challenging you know to to make these different calls Um, now people who are obviously sick it's a fairly straightforward kind of discussion about getting them into the right facility for immediate care and this is probably the trickiest thing about this right now is the you know how do we care for people who are home and worried and You know, so I think the other tricky thing that's been um, a big kind of shocker is the lack of personal protection equipment. So if we do need to see people or if we do need to test people outpatient, you know, we're very limited with gowns and masks and anything to protect ourselves. And so it creates an additional barrier to getting care And plus, um, if you work in an office building and you're bringing in someone with the virus, it affects other people, other businesses. It's very complicated in figuring out how to do this right. So ultimately, you know, I think treating people from home is a really safe and effective way to go about this. And so that's really what I've been trying to focus on for the most part. And then also seeing protocols for curbside testing has been something that I've been really focusing on. So people who could drive up and get tested from their car, that way if they did cough or did have the virus, that the viral load is likely not leaving their immediate environment and exposing other people or office buildings or that type of thing. Um, So, you know, I think the those are some of the things I've been experiencing a lot. I just say from, you know, an emotional standpoint, um, you know, as as a provider, you know, I think about a lot of the people who are in the hospital and, you know, having spent weeks and weeks in the ICU as a parent with a sick child. Um, I will just say that these people are definitely my, my heroes. Um, People who work in an ICU are just some of the most brilliant, equipped, strong, calm people I've ever witnessed. And I think about these people a lot and I almost wish I was in there with them. And it kind of pains me that I'm not um, because I, I, I just feel like I could help and that I could help navigate this situation. And the fact that I can't go in there because I'm not licensed and I don't have the proper advanced training is just something that really, you know, I I just feel like I'm missing out on because I feel like I want to be there and I want to be helping on as deep level as possible. Um, I think this is something we all experience in, is parents of sick child children, or as a caregiver of a sick person, or just as a healthcare provider, is you know sometimes you reach a point where you feel like you're give you you're you're feeling helpless. You wish you could do more, but you have to kind of do your part and just trust the system. And you know from from my perspective, um, I just keep thinking about. The nurses, the docs, the people in these settings that are dealing with a chaotic, uh, out of control, volatile situation. And having been there at a very volatile and controllable part of my life and seeing a very volatile, volatile, uncontrollable situations manifest in ICUs, just I trust. The leadership that these people have in those moments is just incredible. And I think what I see a lot is, you know, sort of a very simplifying approach, not trying to do too much at once. We can really learn from what goes on in the ICU in our lives and take it out into what we're doing in the community, which is be predictable, move methodically go inward and just make very tactical decisions. Don't do too many leaps or jumps, you know, in your decision-making. In the ICU things generally follow a very well thought out checklist process to minimize mistakes. And uh, when something happens, these people have a training they go to. I think about this book um, by Atul Gawande who it's about checklists and he's, a lot of the ICUs and emergency rooms have followed with this model of checklist, but really we, we can learn a lot and I'm not there, but I'm trying to imagine myself there and in these moments where things are so uncertain and use some of the qualities and techniques that are there. So let me give you an example. What we say that comes out of our mouth in a chaotic situation can either cause chaos or bring stability or just be neutral. So we may think we have ideas or something that might help, but if it's not really solid in a chaotic environment and it's just coming out of our mouths or we're just kind of jumping, um, it just adds more chaos. But if we take a step back and we think, how is what am I about to do or say going to add stability or value to the situation to restore homeostasis to the person in front of me, to the condition in front of me, to the system in front of me, how, how is it going to do this? And that's exactly, you know, the model in a ICU um, where uh, they're really trying to bring homeostasis to a situation. So I've been trying to take this and magnify it outside of the ICU into my office and into my home. I think it's not easy because we all have our limits of how much stress and containment we can have. And, um, you know, there's things that leak, especially, you know, being cooped up in a home with our loved ones at this point, and everybody's sort of around each other a lot. And there's all different emotions and people are way out of their routines. And, you know, so even in that system, things could be said that could cause chaos and hurtfulness to others. And we really need to just kind of take this model and just use it. Um, we're all in a sense, never never away from threat. And we all in our life, even though we never imagined we see something like this, we've always been under threat. We just kind of have an illusion that we're not. And this really brings to light how in a very uncontrollable world uh, with lots of different threats and things that stability and calmness is key. And this has been the biggest lesson for me is to bring order and stability through my thoughts and my actions and my interactions with people and through that we can prevent this virus from really damaging us and for making help having us make mistakes or slip-ups or cause harm or damage they realize I didn't talk anything about vitamin C vitamin A mushroom extracts astragalus or anything like that because to me those are all treatments and strategies, and I think they're all important. It's a time for a different topic. But I really just wanted to, to kind of come on here and just share where I'm at, document this experience, share what I've gone through, some of the things I've learned, and uh, kind of a mindset and, a, and some of the gifts of this COVID-19 experience thus far not sure if there will be another one of these talks, but um, I thought it was important just to kind of come on here and share some thoughts and reflections. Thank you very much for tuning in, and everybody stay well. I'm sending my prayers and blessings to all of you, and that we shall continue to get stronger and stronger to as a community and in our bodies and in our minds to help us deal with those chaotic times. And move on as a stronger people and a stronger nation and a stronger world. And a world with peace. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you down the road.